Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to episode 243 of the HPO Podcast. So... One thing I'm going to start doing in front of some of these guest interviews is just do some quick updates and check-ins with folks and give you a little bit of the lay of the land, what's coming up and things like that, and share some ideas I've had so that if you have any feedback, you can certainly send it over my way and, and I'll look into, look into including it on both the video and audio version of this, this podcast. Uh, one of the things, just an update of kind of what I've been up to right now, uh, I've been training for a 100-mile race in Nevada. It's actually the U.S. Track and Field 100-Mile Road Championships that the, the Jackpot 124-Hour Festival is, is hosting this year. So that one's coming up pretty quick here on April 23rd. That's a Friday. Starts at 8 a.m. And I'll be uh, racing some flat, short loops. It's a 1.17-mile road loop that I'll do in, uh, in, in a couple of weeks here. And that'll be an exciting one to kind of test my fitness. So I've been playing around with some different kind of training strategies. I've done things a little differently than what I would have in the past, just to kind of try some things out that I'm interested in from mostly just the way I've been kind of structuring the timing of some of my workouts for folks who are kind of interested. I outlined in episode 208, just like the way I built up and prepared for, a hundred, a flat hundred miler in the past, specifically like in 2019, when I broke the world records for hundred miles and distance running 12 hours at the Pettit center. So if you're interested in kind of what I've kind of more historically done, at least the past few years, that's a good episode to kind of tune in and check things out on for this one. I, I, I guess the biggest variance is rather than kind of training more specifically at a specific intensity or targeting that for maybe like a four to six week time frame. I did a little more blending. So what I mean by that is rather than focusing on like short intervals for a block of time and then phasing into longer intervals and then ultimately getting towards stuff that's like really specific to the race intensity, I started to blend some of those shorter and longer intervals together a bit. And then ultimately I did kind of still pull back from those quite a bit as I got closer to the race to really work on the mechanics and the specifics that I'll be using for the flat hundred miler in, in Nevada. So that part stayed fairly similar, uh, but I'm kind of excited to see just like what that did. The other thing I did is I just kind of had a little more flavor to the workouts. So rather than kind of showing up and doing say three minutes every time for short interval sections, I did a lot more of like some shorter, short intervals, like 30 second stuff, two minute stuff, one minute stuff, uh, and kind of focused on that. And then with, uh, the longer intervals and the tempo runs, 
again, kind of the same idea. I just kind of did a little more flavor there with varying time frames for that. So like eight to 12 minutes was kind of a target uh, duration for some of those. And then some of the, the, the temple runs were, you know, 20 up to maybe 30 minutes, I think is maybe the furthest one I did. And, and that was just more or less adding a little more, uh, I guess, excitement into the plan. So I didn't feel like I was just kind of doing the same workout with just a little more of it week in and week out. And that was kind of fun way to way to prepare for it. So we'll see how that how that turns out. I'll definitely do a, a recap after after the 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 road championships on the 23rd to let everyone know kind of how things played out and that sort of stuff. Um, also, uh, I'm hoping to jump in that same event I did in 2019, where I broke the world records for hundred miles in 12 hours this year, it'll be in June, it'll be kind of mid to end of June. So depending on kind of how recovery goes from the road championships, I'll, I'll likely try to kind of repeak for that one and see if I can kind of show up to that, that, that race with some fitness to, to test things out. Uh, and that's kind of the first half of the year. And the second half of the year is going to be quite a bit different than what I've normally done. So some of you are probably familiar. I've talked about this in the past and, uh, you know, I shared it at the end of, uh, the Joe Rogan experience podcast I went on in 2019. Uh, I was planning a project, a huge project where I'll run from San Francisco to New York. It's called a transcontinental run. It's roughly 3000 miles. And, uh, the current record holder averaged over 70 miles a day, finished in 42 days and six hours. So my big goal for that will be to raise awareness and donations for a charity called fight for the forgotten and their founder, Justin Wren. So Justin Wren's been on the show before too. So if you're interested in kind of hearing his backstory, which is a really inspirational story, uh, you can check out my interview with him or, you know, the, I think he's been on Joe Rogan like nine times now. So there's a lot of opportunities to listen to Justin's story and, you know, his cause with fight for the forgotten, but long story short is he took it upon himself to raise awareness and, funds to build wells and uh, essentially gain basic human rights for the pygmy tribe over in the Congo. So over the last 10 years, he's been putting a lot of time and energy into that. And it's, you know, it's been something he's been so dedicated to. It's even uh, taken him away from his, his professional sport. He's a, he's a mixed martial art fighter. He participated in one of the early uh, UFC uh, uh, ultimate fighter championship stuff. So he's, he's quite an athlete himself and, and it's just really inspiring to see what he's done to kind of give back, uh, you know, even in the prime of his career. So I'm really excited to support that cause for that. And we're looking to start that this year on September 1st. Originally, I was hoping to do that in 2020, but with all the COVID stuff, it kind of just, uh, I, I had to put it on the back burner for a while just because I wasn't sure what, what was going to be possible with that. And there's just so many logistics to consider and so many uh, f folks helping out with that type of a thing. I, I, I had to have a little bit more of a clear timeline and some certainty to really feel comfortable uh, doing that. So that's uh, September 1st, you know, if I can stay on course record or route record, however you want to look at it pace, you know, that would mean I'd finish roughly mid-October, but you know, how that's something that's, you just never know. There's so many moving parts with something like that, that there's a lot of uh, responding to uncertainty and things like that. So it's certainly not a guarantee that I'll get there in, in the same amount of time as Pete did. Uh, who has the record, but, you know, I'm hoping to kind of target roughly that pace. If things go well, it'd be fun to, to challenge, challenge his, his uh, incredible feats back in 2016. And uh, that kind of brings me to some of the upcoming shows. So uh, one thing I've been doing to kind of prepare for this is wrap my head around this is 
talk to some folks who've done this sort of stuff because this is super new to me. I've done a whole bunch of single day ultra marathons. I want to say I've hit around 70 or maybe a little over 70 at this point, but you know, those have been basically between 50 kilometers and then, you know, up to 125 miles is the furthest I've gone. So running across the country is a little different. I'll be running an ultra marathon every day, but I have to be able to get up and do it again the next day. Whereas now the way I race is, you know, you leave it all out there one day and the next day you're just, you know, pretty much trashed. So you don't get up and run typically. So that's something I have to kind of work out, figure out kind of how uh, to go about that and prepare my body to be able to kind of take that challenge on. So I've been really fortunate so far. Pete Koselnick, the current record holder, actually came on and recorded an episode with me. And I think we'll probably have him back on between now and the start just to go over some of that stuff. Uh, I also was really lucky to get Ray Zahab come on the show. And, uh, you know, he has done a ton of these multi-day type challenges. And his kind of niche within that, that kind of challenge is he likes the extreme environments. So he's done things like running across the Sahara desert. He's actually got a documentary called running across the Sahara where they ran, I want to say it was like 7,000 kilometers and every day, no days off, just working their way across that desert. He's done things up in the Arctic and, you know, these freezing environments too. So he was a really insightful guy to kind of share his insight and give me some tips to consider as I prepare for that. So those two guys will be coming up uh, and I'll be doing some more. So I'll be kind of like a, I mean, loosely you could call it like a series of episodes with these multi-day guys that are guys and gals who will be coming on to kind of share their stories with me. If you're interested in checking those episodes out ad-free, you can head over to Patreon. Uh, one of the Patreon tiers, the $3 and above, you get early release of all the recordings. You also get no advertisements on those episodes. And uh, if you're a little more patient and you're going to wait for them to go public, and you want to cut out all the advertisements, the show startup and all that stuff. I move the episodes down to the $1 tier or all Patreon supporters once the show goes public. So for as little as $1 per month, you can access those once they were released as well. Um, other things coming up, we have, or I actually have a, a quick announcement to make too. Some of you have been asking about some like show merchandise, like shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, uh, postcards, like phone cases, that sort of stuff that have HPO logo on it as a way to maybe support the show and get a little something to kind of show for your support. So I did actually set that up now. If you're interested in getting an HPO podcast logoed item uh, to support, then you can head over to my website at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. And on the top right corner next to the donation buttons, there is a link that is HPO merchandise. So if you're interested in something like that, uh, definitely go check that out. So that's all I have. And uh, I'm excited to bring you episode 243 of the HPO podcast. All right, folks, welcome back to HPO. I am here today with uh, Matt Pendola. And Matt is coming to us with a whole host of experience. He's got some uh, really interesting stuff with strength and conditioning, as well as just endurance sport in general. And to highlight a little bit about, about him is he has uh, uh, Exos performance specialist, Jack Daniels, VDOT distance certified running coach, Roadrunners Club of America coach, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff uh, has helped out some notable professionals like Gwen Jorgensen, 
uh, and uh, has a lot to share. So we're going to dive into a variety of different topics here today with Matt and uh, hopefully bring you a lot of interesting things to think about considering your own training and fitness. And as always, hopefully inspire you to get out there and, and, and exercise in whatever mode that you prefer. But Matt, thanks for taking some time coming on HPO. Yeah, Zach, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's a true honor. It's a pleasure. I've been following your career for a while now, so it was nice to uh, hear from you and, and uh, thank um, Brody Sharp for that. It was a great interview with him. And I have a podcast called the Relative Run Readiness. So this is something that's a true passion of mine to really delve into these running topics. And, uh, you know, you're the per- perfect person to, to, uh, to talk about these things with. So thank- thanks for having me. Cool. No, absolutely. It was, it was great to get connected. And it's always interesting kind of, you know, I'm at coming up on 250 episodes now and you, I do find that, you know, sometimes when you know, like someone will reach out to you about something and they'll suggest a guest or you'll have a guest on and they'll say, Oh, we talked about this topic. You have to speak to so-and-so. And that was kind of the, the situation with this one. I had Brody Sharp on, which will ha- end up being probably maybe a couple episodes earlier from this one when they both go up. Uh, and, and he recommended uh, having you and connected us. So it is really kind of a cool like network that podcasting offers when you can start getting connected with different people who you may otherwise would have never even even heard of, or if you did hear of them, never imagined you'd be sitting there uh, having a one-on-one conversation with them. <laughs> yeah, that that is such a cool part of this. And I, I never imagined I would do podcasting or geez, just on the interwebs, right? It's just something that has been so different of a turn in this industry. For me, I did brick and mortar for the first 20 years of my career, which absolutely loved that. And you know, quite honestly, was was kind of holding on tight to that because it uh, served served me well, and I was able to work with a lot of upcoming athletes and different people that I really feel like helped me to to further my knowledge and um, you know how I was able to help others and serve others in my career. But then, as I started to see how some other strength coaches were able to help other athletes. Like Gwen, who lives in Oregon, I started thinking more about this online business. So, you know, that's what I'm doing more of now. And I feel like I can help to serve many others uh, better. So it's, it's a cool little, uh, you know, turn of events here, even with something like COVID. That's um, been a, a tough, challenging year for all of us. But um, I am grateful for the fact that it kind of pushed me further towards more of the online coaching. And it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think anyone who had an e-commerce setup going into COVID are really, really happy that they started that process beforehand. And I think it has, you know, obviously there's a whole host of negatives that came with with the pandemic, as you would imagine. But, you know, one of the maybe silver linings is it gives folks an opportunity to explore some arenas that maybe they were either just doing uh, as like a small portion or a portion of their business or a portion of their uh, they're set up and are able to maybe sink a little more time and energy into building those out or looking into where they actually fit fit. And, you know, that's one of the takeaways I had on a variety of the things I do is just where the, where the channels are for virtual and how they're still applicable, even outside of a pandemic. I think I've learned some things where I'll carry that stuff forward too. So the education process is very unique like that. There's a lot of different modes to kind of reach people with. Oh, absolutely. And I just um, encourage people to, really focus on their passions, what they love and what they're good at. Now, first one to admit that uh, I'm allergic to 
to technology a little bit, right? But I, I, <laughs> I was, it was a little bit daunting. I was a little bit uh, nervous to get into this world at first, but I found a really good you know, tech guy and I surrounded myself with the right team, just like as we, we do for our, uh, our goals for our sports. We, we want the right team around us and I have a good team around me. So I've, I've been able to learn a lot, but also I can sort of mitigate that with uh, smarter people than me around the technology. So that's helped a lot too. Yeah. My, my wife and I joke about that from time to time when we're deciding whether we should take on some project or something around the house. And it's like, well, first let's think how long this is going to take us to learn how to do this and then do it versus having someone who's been doing it for a decade, come in and, and do it for us. And then kind of decide, well, if we spent that much time just doing a little more work, would we end up spending more or less to actually hire a professional? And it is funny when you think about it that way, like you, you kind of create a team around you who have skills that are maybe focused around some of your weaknesses, and then you can learn from them and improve those weaknesses. But you also have the efficiency as if all the strengths are getting leaned on in a, in a heavy manner. And you can lean on your own strengths a little more when you can off offload some of that other stuff too. So Sounds like you got a, a pretty nice setup there. Yeah, no, 100%. And I'm very uh, grateful. We were talking before the podcast just a little bit, but I've been surrounding myself with some really amazing coaches that truly live to, to serve their athletes the best that they can. And over the past, I would say, decade or so, working with these coaches has been truly um, a, a gift and a legacy that – now I, I feel like putting this all together, Bobby McGee is one of the coaches I work with. He's, um, he's been one of the top, I think, running coaches in the world, really, for many years now. And he says that one and one doesn't make two, it makes 11. So I, <laughs> I think that sums that up pretty well there. So hopefully we can give some good information uh, to people listening out there today so that they can get uh, a little bit closer to their why, their goals. And, and that's what we're here to do. I, I hope I can help with that, Zach. Awesome. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, there's some cool things that we can chat about. And, uh, you know, one topic that I've been exploring a bit more in the last couple of months is just kind of strength and conditioning. And I've tried to look at it in a few different areas. I do have, I've got listeners who are not really endurance athletes, but they are fitness enthusiasts, health enthusiasts, nutrition enthusiasts, and things like that. So uh, sometimes I like to kind of start with maybe a little more of a broad category to make sure everyone is somewhat included with it. But being an endurance athlete myself, we usually end up leaning a little more heavily on that sort of stuff since it's something I can actually speak to with some competency. But, uh, um, one thing I wanted to ask you was when we're thinking about just like strength and conditioning in general, is there like a starting point? for most folks, almost regardless of whether they're going to be using it eventually to supplement their endurance sport, whether they're going to focus primarily on strength and conditioning as their primary activity, or maybe do like a team sport or something like that. Is there some like universal principles that you find are like just great spots for almost anyone to kind of square one it with, I guess? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would say first, I, I did not think that I was going to be a strength coach one day when I was a kid. Um, I was that skinny kid that, that sort of uh, gravitated, I guess, towards running because uh, it seemed like any other sport I was, I was getting knocked around a little bit too much. And I, I didn't have um, some of the coordination uh, with traditional sports. And so I decided that 
I was going to get into some strength training to enhance my running and talk about why I think that happens with strength. But um, when I first started doing those things, I made all kinds of mistakes. And so I want uh, people to, to understand that this process can be, it can be a little bit daunting, overwhelming, even to say, where do I start with this stuff? I was that kid who couldn't do a push-up. Uh, certainly no pull-ups. Um, forget about trying to do the, uh, you know, walk in the weight room and feel confident, right? So when you say a starting point, I think that, first of all, I do have self-assessments that we do in the programming that I believe will help you foundationally to understand where you have to focus or what the focus could be to, uh, to help or serve you better. So for example, with your trunk, everybody knows that they should have a strong core. So I think that's a good thing to, to focus on, especially in the beginning, because everything really comes from those anticipatory response mechanisms, which is kind of that fancy way of saying that the deep muscles that attach to your spine, those deep abdominal muscles and to your lower pelvic bowl, those are your anticipatory uh, response uh, muscles. And, and when we go to do something as simple as a push-up, we really want to make sure that we've focused on those things first. And traditionally, we were told to do uh, sit-ups, right? Things like this. And we, uh, most of us know now today that sit-ups may not be the, the best choice for that. And there's other things that could serve us a little bit better. So what I would say is a good starting point uh, would be to work on your breathing mechanisms and going into some basic plank positions. So even though planks are something that I think we can progress from fairly quickly, I think it's a good starting point. And when I have somebody just go into a typical plank, let's say that their elbows are on the ground. So in that four point position, elbows are on the ground, toes are on the ground. And so they're, they're facing the ground. Like if you're going to do a push up, but you're on your elbows. So that's a, a basic plank position. And we will look at that in our testing as well to see, do we have say too much of an anterior pelvic tilt where our lower back is arching or, or collapsing? Are we um, positioning our shoulders so that we have a little bit more internal rotation or are the elbows right by our sides? Are those elbows able to pull towards our toes and our toes towards our elbows while we create good anterior compression. In other words, flexing your spine and keeping good stability that way, because for example, that test, not only is that a great way to start in that test and to see how long we can hold good tension in a plank without breaking our form, but that stability allows for mobility in the hips, for example. So if you want to improve external rotation in your hip, um, you know, many runners that I start working with, or just um, not just runners, just people in general, they're, they're not really aware that that stability is actually creating quite a bit of mobility that they need in external rotation of their hip, for example. Um, so also preventing things like uh, overextension of their, uh, of their hip, right? So in other words, so they don't compress their lower back in, uh, in movement or in their skill set. So that's a good starting point, those type of plank positions. And of course you can get on your side 
and you do a frontal plank, for example. So that's when you're now on your side instead, and you're trying to create that same kind of compression or that max tension between your elbow and your ankles now on the side of your body or what's kind of called the lateral line. So, you know, from your armpit to your ankles, are we able to hold that? So we, we know that we should be recruiting things like the side of your butt, right? Um, but also that involves something called your uh, QL, your quadratus lumborum, which is your hip hiker. And that quadratus lumborum is a, is a really big stabilizer for us when we're in locomotion, when we're just moving from one foot to the other, while one QL is resisting, the other QL is assisting. So that's something that um, we take care of in just a basic plank movement like that. And then uh, finally, I'd say if you get onto your back and you do just a uh, traditional glute um, extension type of movement that is going to be just a good overall posterior chain movement that you can do. Um, and so I call that the four core, right? Cause it's all for your core and it's to me much more functional. And, um, when you get better with those positions, especially by breathing, um, really working on, I like to start off with actually more of long, strong breathing mechanism, breathing out and really working more on exhalation while you're in those movement patterns. So you learn to keep those lower ribs down. And when you're breathing out strong, that transverse abdominus, which is your first anticipatory response mechanism is really getting engaged because I find that a lot of people are chest breathers. Um, I know I used to be one myself and that in itself will start to help us to actually get that better inhalation. So, you know, these are the type of steps that I think they're not very complicated. They're pretty simple to do. And then we can start to get into more asymmetrical patterns, like when you're doing, say, a bird dog and you're trying to move one arm and one leg simultaneously. That's all really good. But I like to start with more of those isometric static positions uh, first, I, I know that was a bit of a mouthful, but I, that's, that's kind of an example of, of, I think, good starting point. This episode of HPO is made possible through our friends at Bioptimizers and their new product, Cognibiotics. Negative feelings and mood can be impacted by the health of your gut. So serotonin has been linked to happiness, much of which is created in your gut. If your gut health is off, it can lead to negative outcomes such as loss of happiness and positivity. Bioptimizers has aimed at tackling this with their product Cognibiotics, which they call their Breakthrough Mood Enhancer. This formula starts with a solid foundation of prebiotics and probiotics to support gut health and positive feelings in a safe and natural way. Cognibiotics also includes 17 herbs that are linked to enhanced mood, stress management, and improved memory. One of my personal favorite aspects of trying any of Bioptimizer's products is their full one-year money-back guarantee. So you don't have to take their word for it. Just try it out. See for yourself risk-free. Head over to www.cognibiotics.com forward slash human. That's www.cognibiotics.com forward slash H-U-M-A-N. And throw in promo code HUMAN10, that's capital H-U-M-A-N-1-0 for 10% off your next order.
All right, now back to the show. You, you almost uh, answered one of my follow-up questions there. So I was, you were just rolling there nicely. I think uh, I was going to ask, uh, I love that planks are something that you're starting as kind of that foundational thing, because it's something everyone can basically have access to. And it's, there's not like this barrier to entry, like there may be with like a deadlift where like you go in there and do it wrong and you have a bunch of weight on there to start with. And, or maybe you have no clue how much weight you can get and you end up with the wrong amount. There's just a, there's, there's risk involved with that for, for people who are new to it. And if, you know, they may be just barely off, but then they're learning poor technique and poor form and it becomes an issue down the road. Whereas with these planks, I think they're a little easier to first kind of learn without a lot of risk and then implement in a meaningful way. But my follow-up question essentially is, is there like, you mentioned a little bit with some of the positionings, but once you kind of get the fundamentals of that, which I think we could maybe talk about is, are you targeting like in the beginning, like a certain amount of time in the plank position? And are they like, are they increasing volume at that stimulus and then adding some resistance perhaps through, you know, maybe minimizing your contact points on the ground or what is like the progression through that process? Guys, that's, that's great, man. You uh, set me up so nicely there. So I think that planks, uh, there's a point where I see on, you know, the gram a lot, right. Where people are holding a plank for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and it becomes a contest of how long you can hold a plank for. I'm not a big fan of that to, to be honest. Um, I think that a lot of times when, when we're doing those things, we lose focus on the tension. So to me, tension and torque equals strength that we want to uh, adapt to. So I would say trying to hold a plank initially for about 20 seconds and then building to 30, 40, 50, maybe uh, about 60 seconds is when once we can hold that plank for about 60 seconds. And by the way, again, you know, learning to breathe in that position, which I'll get to that in a second, I, I think is, is paramount. So in other words, when our lower ribs are engaged and when we breathe out, we can feel those lower ribs engaging. But when we go to breathe back in, are we able to keep our ribs from flaring, right? We don't want to pop our top. Right. So we don't want to lose that uh, or create that energy leak. And, and most of us without working on those breathing mechanisms probably are experiencing that. So that gives us time to adjust and to just really um, learn to just do these basic positions. But there is a point where now tipping point would say, instead of trying to hold longer, let me go stronger. So now I would go to like max effort, which I would say for 20 seconds or so, you would just really, let's say you're in that prone plank position. You're trying to pull your elbows to your toes and your toes to your elbows. And you're trying to create as much compression as you can. And you're doing it so much that you're shaking, right? And you're shaking to do it. That's good. That's like your nervous system learning, learning, learning to create more torque, more tension. And so I would go like 20 seconds, max tension. And you know, when you know you're starting to get there is when it actually becomes hard within 20 seconds. And uh, when I'll have an athlete say to me that this is easy at first, and then eventually the less time I go, if I say, okay, I want you to give me, go for it. Give me as much as you got. And even 10 seconds, 
they're like, man, this is everything. This is hard. They can create that tension that tells me they're ready for more. And then we start getting into more of the asymmetrical patterns. So one of my favorite things to look at is if you were to get into that side plank, for example, but now instead of just holding, now you're going to start using your obliques, right? So now you're going to start turning through the movement with your opposite side. But what you'll see a lot of times is that people will move their arm before they're moving through their torso. All right. So this is part of what they call the uh, serapi effect, right? So you're looking at, for example, are am I initiating that action with my torso? And then you see that you start to rotate, right? And that rotation now will get that elbow moving and rotating down towards the opposite arm. Now, that's just an example to me of that uh, the peripherals will normally take over first. And so with a lot of times looking at runners and their gait, if we really want to help to maximize their performance, we want good thoracic rotation, but we don't want, we want more anti-rotation in the lumbar, right? Mm -hmm. So that is part of what I look at and saying, yeah, I can see why in your running gait, you may be over rotating because you're actually moving from your peripherals be, uh, before you've really strengthened that position first through the trunk. So that's where I think, again, um, you mentioned something like the deadlift, which is one of my all time favorite movements. Um, however, when we look at the deadlift, it is a little bit more complex. And if we don't have the gym age for it, if we haven't developed that level of understanding and coordination, and we just kind of skip patterns to get more to these kind of, um, you know, bread and butter type of movements that are effective, if we're doing it with the right form and technique, then we could be doing more harm than good. And I think that's where the deadlift can get a bad rap. You know, I was doing deadlifts, deadlifts hurt my back, right? No, it's uh, doing deadlifts wrong can hurt your back, right? It's not how much you lift, it's how you lift. And so I do think it's important that we don't shy away from these compound movements that give us so much benefit. I mean, when you're talking about uh, your triple extension movements, right? So your ankle, your knee, your hip, these are the main compound movements that'll give us the biggest bang for a buck when it comes to producing mass specific force, right? So increasing our capacities for, for power. But again, you know, I think that we have to go through these base positions first. And I, I literally call uh, something like I just described your four core movements as your base, your basics, right? So mm -hmm. there's the play on words I like, but uh, did that answer your question, Zach? Yeah, that's perfect. I have one follow-up question with this stuff is, is there any exercises you would recommend just to get the breathing technique down before, or at least a parallel with the planking? type exercises so folks can kind of move from chest breathing into a more uh, or a better pattern? Yeah, no, th there's, there's some really good breathing techniques that we can do and follow. One, one basic thing I like to do is if you just have somebody um, just standing in front of you and you tell them, okay, what I want you to do is first find good positioning, right? So you're, uh, are you more on your toes or the ball of your foot? Are you more on your heels, right? I want you to try to find that position where 
your weight is evenly distributed on uh, throughout your, your foot, right? And once you found that position, that is probably the more optimal position for you in what we call starting your stack, okay? So from that position, then we put our hands on our lower ribs and we start to breathe out strong and start to feel those ribs cinching in. So you can literally see that their fingers are going to be start from being a little bit separated as they're breathing out strong, the fingers start to come in closer together and then holding that cinch position while they're feeling that even distribution of their weight, they just breathe. Right. And, um, the breathing pattern that I like to use would be longer. And so think about maybe breathing out for five or six or seven count. Okay. So I don't necessarily start with seconds because it can be a little bit overwhelming to go with like seven seconds breathing out at first. Okay. But that's, that's something we might work towards, but maybe a five, six, seven count breathing out and then just trying to hold that air for maybe about a two, three count where we're not breathing out or in, and then breathing back in through the nose for about a five count. And so then we just keep working on that type of postural breathing position. But the benefit of doing it when you're standing up, one, it becomes maybe a little bit more, um, movement related, right? So it's a little bit more kinematic because you're going to be able to now use that in your walking, but also you can do that while you're, let's say, looking at a mirror in front of you to see when I'm breathing back in and do I see my traps lifting up, right? Or my, in other words, my chest rising, or am I keeping those ribs down even as I breathe in? So I'm looking in the mirror and I'm seeing that my shoulders are staying down They're even I'm not lifting my traps up towards my ears or lifting my chest up. I'm not popping the top of my canister. Right. And that's why I try to think of it. There's um, a really good pelvic floor PT that I work with, uh, with Gwen Jorgensen and her name is Jessica Dorrington. And she describes it as popping your top. If you have a can that's uh, that has good pressure and you're, in other words, those ribs are staying a little bit more down. You're keeping that more cinched in position. Then you're able to um, not only generate a lot of force, but withstand a lot of force, right? And so once we have lifted out of that position and our ribs are flaring, in other words, we're chest breathing. Now we're more vulnerable for energy for uh, injury. And then also, obviously, we're going to lose a lot of economy and power. So um, that's something I would say it's good to to start with. And, um, you know, another cool little trick you can do is once you get used to that, you can lay on the ground. So you're prone again and you have, um, you know, crocodile breathing position where your belly is against the ground. But what I like to do is I take a ball, like a tennis ball and just put it right at your belly button. So when you're breathing out, you can feel that compression. And then when you're cinching, um, and breathing in, you can even try to get your belly button away from the tennis ball. So it's a, a little external cue that, that you can use, which, which really can, can make a big difference in understanding the mechanics of all of this. Awesome. That's, 
that's super informative and I think some good actionable items for people to, to get going. I know as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to go bang out some, some uh, <laughs> planks. Um, awesome. So like if, I think that's an, a, a, like, as we talked about kind of a, an awesome starting point for folks, is there like an order of operations that you're looking at next or has it become almost determined, more determined on what is your primary activity that you're trying to, to peak for in terms of what direction you go next, or are there still some fundamental things that you'd probably slide into next, regardless of what the athletes next to goal is? Yeah, no, that's a great question too, because I strongly believe that we all should start with more GPP, like general physical preparation. Um, I think the common mistake a lot of times is that we see that um, you know, again, maybe an endurance athlete would go to more uh, specific or specificity type of work that looks more like running, for example, right? And although that's not um, a bad thing, we, we want to kind of do it in stages and we want to hit that base work first. So in the beginning, I think just the fundamentals are necessary for everybody despite what sport you're going into, because we all have, you know, uh, the same bodies really our mechanics can vary as far as femur length. And we can talk about that a little bit. The differences I think are kind of interesting in, in training with somebody who has really long whips versus somebody who has a, maybe a little bit closer to the ground, right. A little bit more stout of an athlete, but the, the difference, uh, in the base training really, um, would just be maybe in your self-assessment, which uh, again, I do believe in doing those, um, seeing that maybe where your range of motion might be limited in certain areas. So for example, if we did a scratch test, which, you know, I'm kind of mentioning that one because I think most people would know about that one. So that's where you just have, say, if your left arm is reaching over your head and your right arm is reaching behind you and you're trying to touch your, your fingers, we are looking for um, what range of motion we have in our external rotation in our shoulder on one side and more internal on the opposite side. But also we're looking at something like, for example, with the serratus anterior, the, the job of the serratus anterior, it's also kind of called the boxer's muscle. That would, it's known for that because of the reach, right? When you're jabbing, you could, that people can't see, but you can see, right? Zach, I'm Italian. Mm -hmm. So I'm jabbing at you right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I talk with my hands, um, you know, that, that reach with your scapula, that's, that's what that serratus anterior is known for. But with, with runners, I, I call it the runner's muscle because it's going with upward rotation of the scapula is its other main job. And so we need that for our swing. Um, and again, I don't know a single person who doesn't need to have those capacities despite, or no matter what their goal is. Right. So when we look at a test like that, we can see, okay, we usually will see some asymmetry there, right. Are we lacking some, some range there? And of course the, uh, the program would center a little bit more around what I kind of call, um, strength stretching, right. So you would do movements, that are going to address the strengths that we need in say um, the, the back of your shoulder girdle. So, you know, areas like your rhomboids and your mid traps, and we're, we're strengthening that capacity a little bit more. Now you can start to see that the serratus anterior is able to move more 
freely and do its job, right? So these um, sort of reciprocal inhibition type of movements where one, one muscle might be a little bit more restricted, not allowing the other muscle to do its job as much. And then that muscle over time becomes weaker, right? So we, we want to do some specific movements. So something as simple as um, doing uh, some uh, face pull-aparts, you know, that, that would be a good example. I think that most people probably know what face pull-aparts are and that those type of movements where you're just really, um, getting your scaps to squeeze, like think about squeezing your armpits down, right. And getting the squeeze and just having those shoulders nice and centigrated opened up and getting the mid traps to really start to engage more that has just a ton of benefit, especially if you start with just, again, those breathing patterns we mentioned before, I'm a big fan in the beginning of doing, um, like that seven, three, five type of breathing pattern. So longer out seven out hold for three, five breathing back in through our nose and doing face pull aparts in that triphasic pattern. And so, you know, this is, it's slow, it's not sexy, it's not the bells and whistles, but when you go down the line and now you skip ahead a few months and you're starting to do more mass specific force work, you're doing some clapping push-ups or something, we noticed some pretty big differences because we started with what I think of as like a patience phase, you know, it's like, man, I, and I, and I'll uh, finish with this on this part of it. But, uh, when I've, I've been so blessed to have some of these world-class athletes that, uh, that I work with, I tell you the first few weeks, it's always so humbling, I think for, uh, for them, because they're used to doing more bells and whistles and nine times out of 10, usually in the assessment, we find that, geez, you know, you really haven't done a lot of these supportive strength movements in a long time, and you're really good at compensating. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're right. And that's probably where we might've gotten stuck in a rut or experienced, unfortunately, some injuries at times. And, um, that's always the hardest selling point though, is the first, uh, three to six weeks. And once we get past that phase, then uh, I tend to see we have a lot of buy-in because of the way we feel and the way we're performing and uh, our roof seems to, uh, to get higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A couple things on, on what you just said. I think one is like that, the, the, the mobility that you described, I find it so much more like meaningful I, to like, even if you're not an athlete, even if you're just looking for good range of motion and general health and well-being, that's one I think, uh, I know I need to focus on more. And it's, I think a lot of it is just like we spend so much time on our computers or in front of something with our, our arms out It's bringing that, that shoulder forward artificially, which is going to, you know, obviously limit that backward range of motion. And then the other one that I notice from time to time is if I'm driving a lot, cause I got my hands out on the wheels, it's kind of pulling all that stuff forward. So kind of balancing all that out, I think is, is, is important. So uh, the other thing that I really like about both the planks and this is, uh, I think sometimes like we fear as coaches that we're going to prescribe workouts to clients that don't really challenge them in a way that they're looking to be challenged. You know, people think like I'm hiring this coach, they're going to put me through the ringer and I'm going to get this great workout, burn tons of calories and get shredded, blah, blah, blah. And in reality, like I, I would imagine the majority of people when they, when they finally get over that initial excitement and settle down, they're like, they need something that's going to be where they're at. And if they haven't done it before, 
these are great exercises to, to get someone transitioned into it versus throwing them into the fire, so to speak, and hoping they figure it out properly and don't like lose interest and motivation after a month because they're getting challenged far above and beyond what they're capable of at the moment. Yeah, no, it's a, that's another really good point you brought up. Um, I think, unfortunately, we have some, um, some influences out there that are not necessarily serving us the way that we intend them to, right? So I don't, for example, um, I know that a lot of people have tried CrossFit, right? And, mm-hmm. and I'm not a, tro- a CrossFit uh, coach, and it's, it's just a different animal to me. Um, <clears throat> it's not that I don't like it. I just look at whether or not, for example, with Olympic lifts, I think that those are phenomenal, right? But you're looking at this, this rapid uh, muscle lengthening, right? And, and you're looking at how we can get that shortening cycle, that contraction, that force uh, to, to benefit us in, in, our, in our power output, right? So you're doing things like the snatch and the clean and jerk and things like this. Well, you know, they call them Olympic lifts for a reason. It's an Olympic sport for a reason, right? Um, if, if there's an athlete that has two years to learn technique for these lifts um, that I'm working with before we're really worried about our main goal, then uh, we, we can have the time to progress into those things. But oftentimes I'm, I certainly am not given as a coach two years, a lot of times, right? Um, we're looking at what we want to accomplish in the next macro cycle, which is usually more like six months, right? I want to run this race in such and such time, or I have um, this injury, which, you know, more and more so that's, um, it's just part of the job, right? Um, and looking at athletes with, some setbacks or some niggles that are just chronic and they're dealing with these things for a long time. By the time that I see them, it's about getting out of that injury cycle. Now, strength training um, does not create injuries. It also doesn't prevent injuries, right? I'm, I'm not one of those people who are going to tell you you're not going to get injured because you strength train. That's just not true. But um, we can certainly reduce the risk of injury and we can tend to hold a bigger capacity for, for, um, our economy and things like this because of our strength training. That being said, when we don't understand the mechanics of the lifts and, or we haven't spent the, the time to build up, um, the appropriate supportive strength for these movements, for these lifts, then I think we can run into some problems, right? So if we look at the, um, the average female athlete, they will have more of an anterior pelvic tilt than the average male. And, you know, maybe by a few degrees, right? Um, Just as an example. And so with more of an anterior pelvic tilt, if we're going to do something like a back squat, could that potentially do more harm than good when they really don't know how to control their, uh, their, their canister, right? Um, that, that trunk, those mechanisms we talked about before, or if they, they feel like when they're going into the top position of a deadlift or a squat, they feel like their hips are neutral, like they're steering their hips neutral. But in reality, what they're doing is they're compressing in their lower back because they're overextending their hips. They haven't learned what neutral for them should feel like 
yet. And so that, those steps are important. So doing something like um, barbell hip thrusters, to me, you can get um, heavy. It's certainly going to focus quite a bit on the glutes and the hamstrings, but the risk is very, very low. The reward is very, very high because the mechanics are very simple. So that's something that I would start somebody with sooner. And if anything, they're going to learn to control things through their trunk more because that movement is a little bit more basic. So I think that, um, you know, starting with more foundational movements like that are, are important. And then when they get on their feet and they're doing something like a deadlift, they've had some muscle memory, we'll call it. That's, that's now, um, it's not all new to them, foreign to them, and they can control that hip position, which, for example, um, I'm working with Flora Duffy right now, and she's she's had um, a, a great career. She's she's um, won several several um, world championships in Xterra, as you probably know, and and world championships in, in ITU triathlon. And so we're getting ready for the Olympics this year. And with Flora, just as an example, um, with her hip position having a little bit more of a tilt and that's just her biomechanics. We're not going to change that, but recognizing that on the bike, for example, there's going to be more stress distally on her hamstring when she's in an aerodynamic position on the bike. So what we can do is we can work towards getting her to steer with her hips in, in a better position, not trying to uh, change her aerodynamic position at all, or not trying to necessarily do the traditional back squats that I don't believe would serve her. We'll get a better bang for a buck out of uh, the barbell hip thrusters. And, and that is, is working for us. So that's just an example, I think of how it can be different for different athletes and needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I think like in terms of introducing these movements into your routine, the, the barbell hip thrusters, essentially you could just pair like an unweighted uh, version of that alongside those planks and really get to learn the technique and everything before you even end up adding any weight to it. So there's, there's a lot of great, great kind of starting points here. You know, one thing I was going to ask about, cause I was always under the impression a little bit, like when you're trying to get used to deadlifting, obviously maybe working on technique with no weight can be useful but also transitioning into it with something like a hex bar can sometimes be useful just from a, a form. I guess you just can't screw up the form as easily with a hex bar, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. Hex, I'm a big fan of, of hex bars. Um, what can be challenging is, is the potentially the grip, right? So um, what I've noticed with um, I guess I should say that, Right now, the, my focus is with endurance athletes. So I've, I've got five podium project athletes that were, you know, we're training for the Olympics. And then um, I also have some junior elites for the, the next Olympics, right? But they're all um, essentially a little bit more grip challenged, I say, right? Because they haven't necessarily done as much to, uh, to strengthen their grip. So that, that's a little bit sometimes of a limiting factor, I find. But um, over time, we can do things like put a weighted vest on and use the hex bar, right? Mm -hmm. we, can, we, can, we can come up with things there that uh, distribute that a little bit differently. Um, 
and, uh, you know, part of the conversation, I think, going back to at least when I was younger and I was running the 10,000 and uh, hoping to make an Olympic team myself. And I was introduced to strength training and, and geez, I mean, now I'm, I'm almost 50, right? So now we're talking about um, back in the day, the, the training was much different. And I, and I was basically doing like more bodybuilder kind of stuff, right? And uh, by the way, all that, even now that I look at the sets and the reps and my strength coach at the time that was assigned to me, he was a bodybuilder. And so now I look at it, I'm like, I was doing bodybuilding is what I was doing. So I wasn't <laughs> necessarily right, getting my nervous system to adapt uh, in the intermuscular kind of coordination ways that I wanted it for running. And I can see how that wasn't necessarily helping me as much as I thought it was, but I can also say the positives of it, which is that, for example, when we want to talk about steering our hips or looking at control through our spine, um, a lot of these just basic bilateral positions like your squats and your deadlifts and your pushups and your pull-ups, um, you know, they really do help quite a bit with that control so that we don't over rotate, for example. Right. And, um, looking at somebody like, uh, Gwen, uh, I was challenged with her with, Hey, we're over, we're over rotating with our peripheral again. So we're looking at that, but we lack thoracic rotation, right? That's what, that's what we were looking at initially. And what I, what I found is really, we're lacking our, um, extension more than anything through the stability of something that's uh, a little bit more known to people with, um, you know, your, uh, your spinal tract, looking at that engagement as you're lifting your arm above your head, like I talked about before popping the top, that would be more what we challenged ourselves with there. And once we got that more strengthened position, because whenever you put your arm over your head, for example, that's much more challenging on your core, right? And at the same time, it's much more transferable or relatable to our arm swing, which does uh, directly, as you know, Zach, affect your rating for your legs, right? Mm -hmm. So we addressed that and then the thoracic rotation came. We didn't work on thoracic rotation to get that rotation. We worked on extension and upward rotation of the scapula along with those stability muscles in the core. And then you start adding the more complex movements and then it starts tying in. So, you know, finally, I would say on this subject that single leg, like you mentioned with something like an RDL, uh, Romanian deadlift, um, I think single leg can be really great because you're going to take maybe about 60% of the weight with a single leg that you would take if you were doing bilateral with two legs. So there's less weight on your lower back and it's a little bit more forgiving, especially if you're more restricted or lack some range and it's a way that you can gain some range. So not only do you have less compression on your lower back, if things aren't perfect yet for you, it's never going to be perfect, but if things are still being worked out in that direction. And at the same time, you are also gaining some coordination 
of and balance and and uh, things like uh, proprioception and, and interoception. Those things are gained a little bit more with a single leg movement. So um, I like to make sure that we are doing the heavy stuff with bilateral movements because essentially that's always going to be king for getting better ankle knee and hip extension we can always obviously go with more weight when we're bilateral but we do want to supplement or put in some unilateral work and that's usually things like that we'll do on uh, alternating days or as you mentioned before without weight but maybe using some hand assistance um, using a wall using a pvc pipe using something to help with our stability in the beginning so we can get into these positions and graduate towards uh you know not having those external cues or assistant i think that's also important as well because a lot of times we see let's say a lot of um, loss of integration, like our knee is caving in when we try to do something single leg, doing more single leg with our knee, our ankle collapsing, things like that. That's, that's not going to get us stronger for our, our goals. Our positions need to be reinforced. So we want to start off with some hand supports, or in other words, even using like a band where we could have that band, even supporting some of our body weight, and then just looking at progressive overload, I should see every few weeks that I can adapt to that next level. And if I'm not, then there's probably something that I should be doing that I'm currently not and taking a closer look at that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's perfect. I think, uh, yeah, I, I really like anytime there's a very clear sign of progress because <laughs> it's a, it makes it pretty transparent then where it's like well if I'm if I'm stagnating then I'm probably doing something wrong or I need to make some changes or or take a, a finer look at at what I'm doing and that sort of process I think has a lot of those present with it so no that's great um another question I had for you that I'm interested in is uh like kettlebell swings because when I think of just like strength work with endurance athletes once you kind of get and this is maybe a little basic and it lacks some of the nuance that the individual is going to want to seek out when they're programming for themselves but i think there's there's definitely been a movement towards what we've talked about a little bit where we're focusing on like actually heavier weights relative to the to the athlete's tolerance and kind of focusing sometimes more on some of those core movements like squats and deadlifts and things like that and moving away from maybe the stereotypical endurance athlete in the gym where they're on the mats doing 200 sit-ups, uh, you know, like anything from 50 reps and above <laughs> type of a mindset. Uh, kettlebells are one that are like a little hard to like, I think, see in my mind's eye because for one, I mean, you can do high, high weight, low rep kettlebell swings, but I think if we're being honest, most endurance athletes probably are going to lack the technique and the, the, the experience maybe to properly do a kettlebell swing with enough weight to be able to keep it low rep. So I guess maybe my question's multifaceted. Whereas first of all, is there application for kettlebell swings for endurance athletes? And then second, like what is a way to start that? And is there a, a reason to maybe move up into higher weight, lower reps, similar to some of those correlates, or is this an exception where the movement particular to that is just is beneficial to even have it a higher repetition? Yeah, no, that's, um, 
that's those these are great questions i i love it i'm going to try to put this in the right order here so first of all i would say just learning proper hip hinge is paramount right so if i were to take a band and put it and anchor it behind me and i step into the band right so i'm talking about one of these uh big um bands i'm not talking about a, a hip circle band a small band but one of the bigger bands and with uh, the resistance that's appropriate for you but in other words you get a thick enough band where you're even on your knees to start and the bands around your waist and the anchors behind you so the band is pulling you back and it's allowing you to learn that hip hinge and to slide your hips back now to me there's going to be no real compression um, on your lower back. You're going to be able to learn how to get into a proper hip hinge. And then you, again, hopefully using a mirror so you can look at your form, but you work on that breathing pattern, right? So we're going to extend, right? And we're going to get our hips into good extension while we're breathing out. And we're going to make sure that we're nice and stacked while we're in that extended position. And then we're going to learn that um, and get confident with that. Then we're going to stand up. Now we're going to do the same thing. And now we're learning to do this a little bit more. Like I kind of call that like an athletic anchor, right? <laughs> it's literally anchoring you back and you're learning the position. And then you can grab a kettlebell and you can start swinging that kettlebell but with the band that's pulling you back. So as you're thrusting that kettlebell up, the kettlebell is starting to swing down. The band is pulling you back. Right. And so that is something that can, I think, help you to learn that coordination. But uh, the main thing is that we want to make sure we're steering properly with our, our hips. Right. So th that is like a progression to that, but get to your, your point about there's, a certain amount of weight, I think, that uh, you can use with a kettlebell and you can use that with some power, right? So if you're using maybe, I'm just going to throw out 30% of your body weight and you've built up to that, you know, starting with maybe 10% building up from there. And then you just feel like, okay, I've, I've kind of, I've gotten confident with this. And that's always a key to me is if I can see that an athlete is holding good position and they're confident, they're not making uh, the same errors they were making initially, um, then we can start going into some more power. So that's why I would even say exchanging your hands so that you're coming, thrusting up one with your right hand, you let go of the kettlebell, you grab it with your left hand, you swing back down, right? So we're starting to get a little bit more chaos there, requiring some more coordination. Um, but I don't like to go with a lot of reps. I like to increase speed, increase dynamic effort in a movement. So to me, a sweet spot is generally going to be around um, 30 to 40 seconds for strength. And for power, when we start working more towards power, we usually will go with more a lactic power. So like six and a half seconds would be a lactic power. And for that, I think there's better tools that we can use. Um, I think that we can use a power ball, for example, and do some good med ball slams for six and a half seconds, we can, we can do, of course, our plyometrics, which we can talk about that a little bit, 
but I don't like to do as much on repetition ranges as I like to look at time under tension. So I'm, I'm kind of known for that. My coaching where, um, instead of saying I want 15 reps, um, I'd say, okay, let's talk about a good controlled movement where I say, okay, work on these breathing patterns, work on these uh, isometric or active holds each time you do a rep. And so getting back to just using that band to learn the hip hinge with getting those slower triphasic reps in. And I might say, okay, um, let's do that for 30 to 40 seconds. I don't really care how many reps you get in. Then eventually you're, you have that kettlebell, you're doing your swings. And I say, okay, now we want dynamic reps, which basically means just fast, you know, you know, speed strength in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. So now let's see how many good reps we can get in, in, 30 to 40 seconds. But when I say good reps, like per athlete depends again on their whips, right? How, how much traveling do they have to do versus somebody else? So we find maybe for their 30 to 40 seconds, they're doing, let's say, Oh, um, let's say 20 repetitions in 30 seconds. Right. To me, what I want to look at is, can we do about one second per rep? with really good control and get fast. Right. So we would hold on to that weight and just try to go faster with that weight rather than just keep going up in weight to the point where now you're doing say one rep every two seconds. So in um, let's say 30 seconds, you've are, you've only done say 15 reps to me, that's not good dynamic effort. But if we look at that with other lifts where let's say we're trying to get in, um, a deadlift again, looking at like an RDL, we might be getting in between say six and 10 reps in, um, you know, in our time under tension in about 30 seconds. So, uh, the athlete is just executing really good form, heavier lift. The, the bar is not traveling as fast, but it's not stalling either. If I see an athlete stalling the bar for more than a, you know, a, a half a second or so, the weight is, is probably getting too heavy for our intended purposes. So a lot of times when we talk about um, our heavier reps, we're looking at six to 10. And if we get to 10 repetitions, probably time to go up in weight again. And if I take something like say push-ups, because everybody at home, you can try this. If you, let's say you do, um, push-ups and, and, and hopefully we have good, um, understanding of our form with our push-ups. But when you're doing say 10 really good hand release push-ups, right? So that's the way, um, I coach them where your hands are, if you're on the ground, your hands leave the ground. So you have that scap retract and then you push the ground away and you kind of drift back. And as you come down towards the ground, you drift forward again and we release our hands again and say we do 10 of those. And on the 10th one, like, man, we're shaking, we're stalling a little bit, but we're not stuck. We barely get up there, but we do and we hold good form. So 10 was our max effort. We could not do an 11th rep with good form then I will advise that that athlete probably trains in seven to eight reps per set. So we can go sub-maximal because I think that that's the, um, the other thing that oftentimes we're looking at people going too close 
to their threshold. Um, it's no really different to me than somebody going out there and just pushing their threshold on runs like way too often. Like I love Bob Larson's type of training, but it's not like you're going to go out there and kill yourself every day. So in the strength room, if we train at say uh, about a sweet spot to me would be about two reps in reserve or about an eight then we're going to get a lot out of it, but we're going to recover faster. We're going to be able to, to train more consistently without overdoing it. And that to me also, um, that prevents some potential injuries, but also just people saying, man, I, I, I'm my, my main focus is my running and I'm so sore that I can't, or so tired that I can't even get in a good run anymore. Well, that's no good either. So I find go to like a seven to an eight in your RP using that type of example, and you're going to make a lot of progress. You're not going to overdo it. I hope I um, didn't go off on too much of a tangent there and trying to stay on track. <laughs> no, you're, you're doing a phenomenal job of preempting my questions actually. So it's just, we're sliding right in and you're, you're doing what the listeners sometimes uh, encourage me to do, which is to like vocalize less. So <laughs> 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 um, I, yeah. I was going to ask you about like the rep total thing. Cause I think one thing I usually try to mention to my coaching clients and practice myself is leave two in the tank. So like, yep. you know, if I'm doing, even if I'm doing something like squats or deadlifts or something like that, where I think people are maybe a little more inclined to think like, all right, I'm going to failure. Cause you know, they hopped on YouTube and watched a powerlifting competition and saw that those guys were going to failure. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, the, the two in the tank. And then I, th I always find when I do that too, my overall volume that I'm able to spend doing that activity goes up by like a pretty noticeable amount. If I go in and say do three sets of 10 and that, 10th rep of that third set is like me just like wobbling and barely getting it up, probably sacrificing a little bit of form at the very end. You know, I might not make it back for another one of those sessions for a week or so. Whereas if I leave two in the tank, you know, I might get in there for a second or a third session that week. And, you know, my volume overall over the course of that seven day period is going to be, this is going to be higher. And obviously there's a limit to how much of that I would actually probably need. So there's, there's some things to consider there. Uh, but I really like that message. And I think it, it, again, like some of the stuff in the beginning, it makes it more sustainable for folks in the long term when they get past that initial excitement of, all right, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something exciting. I want to go there and give it my all. And they get into just like kind of the, the wear and tear, so to speak, of the activity. Then, you know, it's a little easier if you're feeling a little uh, unmotivated to go and do your, you know, three sets of eight when you could do three sets of 10 in theory, then to go there, do the three sets of 10, when you know that 10th rep of the third set's going to take you to the, to the, the brink of tears, so to speak. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Uh, this has been awesome. Uh, I wanted to chat a bit about um, plyometrics, which you mentioned. So uh, uh, yeah. What, what are some kind of, I guess maybe we'll stick with the theme of where's the place to start with these. Like if someone's never done plyometrics before, they're semi-familiar with them, but not very competent. What is a good spot to kind of begin that journey? Yeah, that's a, that's another great question. So, uh, you know, listening to our conversation, if, if you've never done this type of work before, you might say, well, you know, he said, do a lactic work, which is six and a half seconds or less. Right. But those are like highly explosive type of movements that we sort of graduate towards, but there is, um, some contradiction in what I'm saying, because I would advise a little bit more accumulation first. 
right? So do endurance athletes need to do more, um, you know, endurance, right? Well, no, in my mind, we've already got plenty of those sort of cyclic action repetitions, um, in our, in our running or in, in our endurance sports. But, uh, that being said, we can have, I think a good accumulation stimulus with something like a pogo. Okay. Where we can really focus on ankle stiffness. And that's something that I feel like everybody can do. It doesn't even require the coordination of jumping rope right now, how far off the ground you're getting to me, it's pretty simple. Are you keeping good stiff angles, ankles, and are your feet drifting away from each other? In other words, what I do is I'll say, okay, I'll start an athlete and I'll say, okay, I want you, when you pogo, you're just looking again, like you're jumping rope, but you're just pushing down into the ground. And I just try to keep the cue very simple. I just tell them push down, push down, push the ground away, push the ground away, similar to your running. So when you're doing this, um, I'll just say stop. And then they stop, look down. Do we have one foot ahead of the other? Okay, that's uh, the first indication we're not steering with our hips necessarily the way that we thought we were. So if we have one foot slightly ahead of the other, that means that the foot that's, that is ahead is probably that hip, that complex, uh, that side of our body is probably a little weaker or, in other words, not contributing to the challenge as much. Right. So I try not to, by the way, I, I try not to say, Hey, you have a weak side. You just have a more challenge side. And we're going to take this as a challenge. And then that's where, again, we would look at some strength adaptions for that, which most likely would be like, um, doing your lateral line bridges, leg raises, um, you know, frontal plane walks, things like that. Um, but while they're actually doing the pogo, we, we also can look at having them just putting their hands by their sides. So their thumbs are by like their side, butt, their glute lead minimus, but the, in other words, their, their thumbs are like kind of pushing into the sides of their butt with their fingers and the front of their hips. Right. And all they're doing is sort of giving themselves an external cue and say, okay, let's feel that squeeze as we're jumping in the air. Let's feel that contraction. Okay. So when we do it that way, then I say, stop. Oftentimes we will see that now our feet are starting to match up. Okay. So why that's important to me to start with stuff like that is because, you know, how, how many reps like that do we do like jumping rope and things like this, where we don't even realize we have an asymmetry and it's really not a big deal because we can keep doing it. We can tolerate it. But again, are we necessarily getting what we want out of it? So doing things like that, I also would um, encourage people to take videos of themselves and then slow it way down. That's, you know, using something like Coach's Eye, an app like that, where you can see if you are collapsing in areas that you weren't aware of. Right. So looking at pronation, for example, and the the foot ankle complex, um, that's where we get like, I don't know, I think about a third of our injuries, I believe, in, in running usually. And then if you add the leg in there, that's another 20%, right? So uh, you add the knee into that equation and you pretty much you've got quite a, quite a few of those injuries that come from uh, what I believe a lot of times is is glute work that we need to do, but I think that's been a little bit overrated. I think that, you know, if we are steering properly with our hips, most runners, most athletes, um, 
they do have strong glutes. And um, for example, Gabby Williams, she's an athlete that I, she's been, I've been so blessed to work with her since she was just a, just, just a kid. Um, and she went to the uh, Olympic trials for the high jump at 15 and she set the junior world record and she's a professional basketball player now. And long story short is she had, uh, torn her ACL at a very young age. And what, uh, then I, uh, then I got her as an athlete for, that process and returning her to sports that she could continue to, uh, to, to play basketball. And, and she ended up playing for UConn, et cetera. And the big challenge to me was looking in slow motion at such a phenomenal athlete that was so good at compensating and realizing that a lot of it came from her winless mechanism. Right. So this is just where you have that sort of, um, that, that, um, process of the footbed and where your metas are and your big toe, especially when you're pushing down into the ground, are you getting dorsiflexion and loading that spring, right? And then are you able to get good mass specific force and pushing down, especially that big toe is going to drive that? Or are we lacking some of that stability in our arch and then over pronating and because I mentioned that, because with Gabby, she did not have weak glutes. I mean, her, her glutes were just, uh, well, stronger than mine for sure. And, and, um, and so that didn't work, right. To say, oh, we got to strengthen your glutes because you, you tore your ACL, right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it became foot leg to me. And, and so we, we looked at that and I'm not saying glutes aren't important. I'm, they, they are absolutely important, but a lot of times when we're looking at, again, you know, somebody running with their, their foot or their heel going further out in front of their hip than is optimal, then they're putting the brakes on every time and strengthening the, the glutes can, can help with that process. But really, I think we're looking more, are we stacked, right? Getting back to that equation, are we stacking properly? And if we are, most likely, then we're going to start to get our foot under our hip more, and then the glutes can do their job. So is it the glutes aren't strong enough, or is it that they can't do their job because we're not in the right placement? Because that's an anti-gravity muscle. As we know, that glute is that main anti-gravity muscle. Really, I think it, it works really closely with, of course, the soleus and uh, your back muscles. But you know, are we even giving that glute the opportunity to, to do its job? So something like a paloff, right? Um, probably most people would know with a paloff, if we're going to uh, have a band that is lateral to us, um, and then we're going to do like, say, maybe the alphabet, right? Um, with that resistance in our hands and doing a banded alphabet and then getting to, say, a single leg paloff that uh, is a great way to strengthen the arches in your foot, right? And starting with something like that and then going to say maybe some, uh, some drills where we're really pushing down into the ground and balancing through, um, through our footbed and challenging our positions more that way now, but not necessarily starting off with that where we're probably just going to end up uh, losing our positioning. And so again, it, it's about stages to me. Um, and then with the ankle stiffening part, when we see that we've gotten really good at that, I like to 
progress a person, but even Gabby as a basketball player, we didn't work as much on high box jumps as people would probably imagine we did. We worked a whole lot more on ankle stiffening box jumps, a more reactive type of jump. So she, she might only uh, be a few inches off of the ground. And then I'm telling her, okay, start on the box. I want your feet to hit the ground, come back up. I want that to be as fast as possible that I want to work on that reactive power. Um, and then eventually getting into things like depth jumps, right? So depth jumps would be another stage to get to. So you start with the pogos, then you, you, you make it maybe a little bit more uh, power and you do reactive box jumps, um, maybe graduating to say six inches, nine inches off the ground, and then start working on say some, some depth jumps where you're going to step off a higher box and you, your feet hit the ground, and by that point, you should have trained that windless mechanism by doing these other steps. So you have that, that proper uh, flexion extension process happening um, automatically without really having to think about it. Your knees aren't kissing each other because you've done the work, and now you can just spring right off the ground and get a good counter jump. Um, and lastly, I'll say something like that, depth jumps or, uh, you know, really loaded plyometric type of stuff. We really want to limit the amount of reps that we're doing there. So that's where I like to go 6.5 seconds or less. I, and, and that's it. Like, I don't go past that. And I'm always just trying to that point going, going faster. So if they can, if they can handle more weight with good form and they're hitting their numbers, then that's great. But a lot of times we just need to have, I'd say, um, maybe starting with 10% body weight and going to 30%, a lot of times would be the most that we would increase weight on things like that. And in many cases, obviously we're just talking about body weight being more than effective. Um, yeah. Did that, did that <laughs> answer your question, Zach? Yeah, that was awesome. I think, uh, I, I really like how you focus on some of these areas that I think are a lot of times forgotten. Cause when I mean, people think of strength work, they're thinking of their quads, their glutes, their hamstrings, the, their, their pectoral muscles, biceps, all this, those like kind of, kind of, uh, more mainstream muscles, I guess you'd call them. Uh, and not always thinking about just how everything's all connected and where you need to what we need to focus on to actually make improvements and you know, Gabby's a perfect story of that. Like, you know, one of her strengths was actually something that had you just taken a quick glance at, you maybe would have doubled down on something she's already quite good at versus addressing the problem at hand. And I, I, I always find runners and running really fascinating with this too, because it seems like once we get down past like your calf muscle, all of a sudden then it's different. Like, Oh, I hurt my foot. I hurt my ankle. Therefore, I need to find this, 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 this workaround for it and never get around to actually addressing the problem at hand. <laughs> and then by the time you, you, know, you end up throwing a bandit, one bandit after another at it, before you know it, you're as compromised in that area as you've ever been. And heaven forbid, you, know, you remove all that structure and support that you bandaid it up with and, and have to actually use that area of your body in a way that is, is a little bit natural. And then you find yourself getting hurt again. And uh, yeah, focusing on strengthening those areas and keeping them, them dynamic enough to be able to tolerate your training load, I think is a huge piece of the puzzle that oftentimes gets overlooked. Hey folks, I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12 week base building plans all the way up to advanced hundred mile training plans. 
If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, no, and, and one thing that I I know we were touching on before, but I want to make sure minimal effective dosing is something that I personally really believe in. And even though I'm myself training for um, a 50 mile trail race this, this year, and we'll have to, I'll have to get some advice for you on, on uh, where, where I should, uh, where I should go with this, uh, with, with my trail racing. But I, I still believe minimal effective dosing applies in everything I'm doing towards that goal, but especially when it comes to the strength work, because the, the idea is that I want to be able to put majority of my focus in the mountains and I want to get the most I can out of it. So when I say that, I'm just going to share my own, um, brief story here, but I, I was, um, after, uh, my stint and my attempts at becoming, uh, becoming a, a better runner when I was younger and, and with some Olympic dreams. But when I ran into the amount of, um, you know, issues that I did, then I started to look at other avenues that I could use, uh, these attributes for. So I joined a hot shotting crew and this was in, um, Flagstaff. So the Flagstaff hot shots, and I ended up getting what I called uh, tree trauma because I was a sawyer. So it was a, it was a, a fire um, and somebody was cutting the, uh, well, I was cutting a tree, but it was uh, halfway up, there was a fire. And um, uh, when, it, when the tree ended up eroding enough, um, it came down, half of it came down on me, right? Mm. So I ended up um, having the entire left side of my body crushed, essentially, and I call it tree trauma, right? So when I, um, when I got into strength training, initially, it was more where I got back into it, I say, initially, it was more because um, I wanted to be able to walk again, forget about running. And then eventually, I realized that my old running injuries weren't coming back because I had strengthened these positions so much that I needed for around that spine. So that's what kind of delved into these other things. And then I got for a while, I think stuck on how I had to do a lot to initially get strong enough so that I wasn't in pain anymore. And I got stuck on, let's say I'm going to do five sets of everything Mm -hmm. and I'm going to put in four or five days of strength work a week. Right. And by the way, I never got really like big or anything because, um, my body kept streamlining itself more for running and I put more calories towards running and et cetera. So the whole, um, thing about I'm going to bulk up too much. It's just not been my experience at all. Um, but that's another uh, podcast probably. But what I would say is that um, what I eventually had to realize and let go of was um, all of the sets and reps I was doing. And I nowadays, I tend to do 
um, a workup set or maybe two. So it's a set that's uh, less intense or something that's going to prime me up for my main compound movement. I'll pick a few good compound movements that I'm going to work on. I'll do a few top sets. So top sets are kind of what you described before of saying you're going to work at say maybe about an eight, right. Out of one to 10 scales, so about 80%. And I'm just going to do a few sets and I keep my uh, my time under tension and my training time down to about 30 to 40 minutes. So as, as I was saying before that, instead of doing four or five days a week of training and trying to hit an hour each day, I cut it down to uh, two, sometimes three days of strength training. And my performance just went through the, the roof after that um, compared to what I was doing. And I realized I didn't need as much as I thought I did. So minimal effective dosing, um, you know, I would always say retest and retest yourself once a month to see where you're coming from and to see, you know, in that push-up example I gave uh, before, you know, now can I do 12 push-ups instead of 10 to failure, right? And just do a set and see where you're at and just keep retesting yourself just like you would in your sport. But then um, when you don't, when you plateau and you realize you're now I'm not really seeing any real changes, then maybe it's time to accumulate a little bit more, add another set, add, add some more reps, et cetera. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up because I think that's um, a lot of times I am looking at athletes that are, they're just chronically fatigued and it's not, there's really no reason for it. They're not getting the additional benefits they might think they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. I think sometimes as runners, we get a little, a little carried away in the sense that you, we see some improvement and we automatically go to, if that was good, twice as much must be better. <laughs> and I, I think it's uh it's an interesting, cause it's like, it's, it's, it's like a proactive mindset, but it's a proactive mindset that can backfire on you very quickly if you don't let those gains kind of realize before adding a little more to it. So I really like what you said, like go watch that progress happen and don't think of it as like, well, I could get a little more if I do a little more, you know, ride it out. And then when you plateau, then make that next change. I really like the way that you're thinking with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I would tell you that, um, right now I'm working with Ben Canute. He's, uh, He's a really uh, strong Ironman competitor and, uh, and you know, triathlete, but just basically um, wanted to uh, give him as an example there to say that just recently we were discussing whether or not he needed to do an additional strength training day, but he's making so much progress and um, he's really found some, uh, some strong adaptions occurring and his now we're getting uh, better economy. The whole, the goals are all being accomplished. So do we need to do another day? I, you know, I don't see why we do at least not right now. Right. So that's just, you know, even at any level, but even at that higher level, we're only actually focusing on a couple days a week of, of good strength work. That's it. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you, you're highlighting kind of the individual component there. And I know we chatted a little bit before, I hit record about some individuality with even just like, I guess maybe what you'd call like your taller, more lanky runner versus your shorter, more stout runner. What are, are I guess maybe I should start with like, is there some differentiation that tends to fit those styles a little better? Or is it oftentimes like individuals an individual and I have to have gotten really just focus in on that versus any type of, uh, um, 
I guess, structural differences maybe is the way to say it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the biomechanics, that equation is going to possibly change the recipe for success for, from one athlete to another. Right. So when we talk about somebody with longer whips, um, you know, of course there's exceptions to every rule, but using somebody, um, like Gabby, for example, we talked about her, um, her vertical, she, she, she pretty much, um, got recruited because of her vertical, right. I mentioned what she did in the high jump, but she, she was, uh, the, the top recruited athlete um, at the time for basketball. And she went to UConn the first, I'm not slamming UConn here, but the first year um, that she went there, she lost about six inches on her vert. And um, you know, of course I, I couldn't control her strength training there. And what she was doing though, was heavy back squats. Now when she's standing next to me, I'm six foot uh, to Gabby is, um, about six foot, just a little bit under that. And, but her hips are actually at where my ribs are, right? That's mm-hmm. how much longer legs, her femurs yeah. <laughs> are than mine. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine the amount of force that she had when she would go to below parallel squat. All right. And especially in a back squat, the other thing you got to know about Gabby, if you take a, a look at her is, um, she, especially powerful athletes, a lot of times she, they have an anterior pelvic tilt a little bit more than others, but she has even more than most. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the, those two things combined, it was taking away from her anticipatory responses. So that gets into a conversation about the multifidi and her lower back and some other things, but essentially way too much uh, force on her knee too, right? The compressive forces on her lower back and her knee. So it started developing these issues that she, I don't feel like needed to have because um, she was strong. She was, uh, I think, I believe actually had the biggest squat numbers there at the time, but how was it serving her? How was it working? Right. How is it serving her? And it really wasn't. So when she got back from that first year, um, we got back into more traditional exercises that we knew would work better for her. So for example, I'm not saying not to squat, but we went into a Bulgarian squat, right? So that's where your back leg is elevated. And now she's able to go with, um, you know, 60% of the weight still with her very strong athlete, but I didn't put the bar on her back. Instead, we were doing Bulgarian squats. Uh, well with a hex bar, for example, we did it with a hex bar. Um, and also with just dumbbells, you can add a vest example. There was that she got, um, not only her six inches back, but we actually got another roughly another inch out of her vertical. And we did that in six weeks. So because we just addressed what was going to work better for her biomechanics and her nervous system. That's what she came back with. And then I'll give UConn a lot of credit where they were very open to the progress she made and uh, the strength coach and I did talk and then they decided that she would stick with that kind of a platform more. Um, So that's an example about how every movement is not necessarily going to work the same for everyone. And, and, um, then when you look at somebody with, uh, let's say they're shorter whips, right. And their mechanics, um, a little bit closer to the ground, maybe, you know, they, they may have a better foundation for, uh, some of these traditional 
uh, ranges that we speak about. But getting back to the squat, for example, if you have a butt wink, and that means that basically you're going um, you know, down into your squat, especially when you get below parallel, you might notice that your tailbone tucks in and you're essentially rounding that uh, lower position with your, your hips. And that is essentially looking at the restriction in your hip flexors, right? Potentially, or maybe you have a, um, a restriction in your thoracics, right? You lack thoracic extension. Your body's trying to tell you something there. So that's where we may have an athlete like that work on the range of motion in those positions. But once they get that range, and we might say, okay, I want you to now squat down onto a box, but I want you to imagine that that box is, that box is a, a scale, okay? So I have you have with half your body weight on the scale. So you're not resting on the box, but I, in other words, I'm getting your sit bones evenly on the scale and half your body weight. Now I want you with good uh, force. I want you to give me a good dynamic effort coming out of that position with good control then we start to go with a lower box and a lower box that athlete can certainly do the traditional squat with full range. And I see nothing wrong with it. As long as they have adapted to, or progressed to the movements and their mechanics are sound. So, you know, there's, there's one athlete that could certainly benefit from your uh, traditional squats with the right progressions. And there's another athlete like Gabby or Gwen with her long whips um, that uh, I would never see doing that and, and benefiting from. It's just there the, at the end of the day, her femur length isn't going to change. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think we have to look at um, in the world of strength training and powerlifting, where are we getting a lot of this information from? A lot of the top um, you know, Olympic lifters, you know, they have shorter whips, right? They're, they're not uh, made for sports like necessarily the ones that we're doing. So we, we want to look at, um, you know, what we're adapted for and, and what could work better for us and, uh, and then go from there. So I would always say, look at your body type, look at your mechanics. And, um, you know, shamelessly, I would say that uh, uh, over the last five or six years or so, um, I did develop some systems with Bobby McGee, the running coach I mentioned, where we call it the, you know, when 10, and we look at 10 very important things for gait mechanics that we test for. And then from those things, we look at how we can optimize our positions with these kind of, um, you know, progressions that we've mentioned today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one thing I was going to ask you about. So when you're working with folks, do you oftentimes do like, uh, just like an, an, up, uh, an upfront assessment and identify kind of where their strengths and weaknesses are, how their mechanics are unique and then start programming from there, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, 1000%. And, uh, you know, I, I went to uh, LMT school, got my license and then put in some time with some different therapists, physiotherapists, et cetera. Um, I did a lot of mentorships and I would see that there needed to be a, a bridge anyways, right? I would see that there was a real gap between physical therapy and strength training. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to be able to, to, to try to close that gap in. And that's why I got my LMT license. Honestly, like I don't actually work on anybody on a table for uh, like for money. (laughs) (laughs) I do it. I do it to, uh, to help with, uh, with, with certain things, but in, in general, it, it was more so that I could uh, literally 
get in on hands-on type of training and be on the floor and be able to assist uh, with these athletes. But, you know, the point is when we look at um, that gap, we saw that they're just going from, again, some of these more, um, you know, therapy-based, you know, training progressions, which is great, but then just jumping right into like, you know, there was no ramp. They were just jumping into their training program again. Um, and, and that there needed to be a ramp there. And then when I looked with Bobby at his skill sets and he's the, you know, just, just a phenomenal coach, but he specializes in running. And when I was looking at some of the skill sets that he was giving athletes, I realized there was a gap there between the skill set and saying, you know, you need to, um, look at, let's just say getting, your, um, your hip position, you need to steer with your hips a little bit better, or there's over rotation that's going on with your spine, right? So what, what can we do for that? And that's where I came in um, to help Bobby out so we could get those adaptions so that the athletes were able to perform their skill sets and execute them with better form. So, you know, I think that that's where, again, a lot of these progressions we worked on over the years, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what we came up with. We essentially put those movements together. I can send them to you, Zach, as well, but, um, you know, again, shamelessly, I would say that we have um, 14 days free trial. You can do all the assessment, you know, when 10, you can see what not only uh, what you need to work on, but um, the movements are automatically uh, prescribed uh, depending on where you are optimal, non-optimal or less optimal. And so now you have a set pattern of movements that we suggest you do every day for about eight to 12 minutes a day. And it's more about getting that, those responses from your nervous system and, and starting with that uh, base level of protocol that I feel like everybody needs. And myself, I'm at a desk and I'm doing more, um, you know, sitting than I ever have. So I have my own protocol I have to follow too, right, Zach? So I mm-hmm. think um, that should always be sort of a staple. And that's, that's kind of what I believe um, can really make the difference and, and give yourself the opportunity to, to uh, benefit from the strength progressions and power progressions that come next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like uh, the value of someone like yourself working with an individual is a lot of it is going to come from just the reality that if I hop on the internet and decide to look for movements that, that I believe, or in some shape or form could improve me, I'm going to end up with a hundred plus different movements. So then, you know, I come to you and you can take that hundred plus list and whittle it down to, well, here's the three to five that you actually really are going to gain something from. If you want to add some of these other ones down the road, or if they become more valuable later, we can get to those, but here are the ones to start with. And I think that's like, you kind of get that paralysis by analysis type of situation. I think when folks go at it on their own, because they are essentially uh, presented with a limitless amount of information that they can, they can pull from, but ultimately they need to find out what parts of that information are actually valuable for their particular set of circumstances. Man, I I need to take that uh, clip that you just said, and that'll be my (laughs) promotional. Put it on the marketing page. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say this and, and I'm, I'm sure you're probably all getting sick of hearing me by now, but, um, I spent years 
just trying everything and, um, and, and not really understanding myself, let's say 30 years ago as an athlete, what I needed to do. So I just did everything. Right. But I mean, at a certain point, like, man, I don't want to spend an hour a day doing protocol. And then mm-hmm. even as a coach, I used to be a little bit more like, oh, this is great for this. And this is great for this. And I'm, I'm excited about what this can do for you. And then, you know, an hour later, the athlete is like, I got to do this again tomorrow. So, <laughs> right. So, so we, we have come up with um, the best bang for your buck movements. And, you know, quite honestly, this also came with the learning curve and, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? I, I, when I was younger, I thought I knew everything. And then I got to the point where I realized I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And now I feel like, okay, the, these movements, I'm very confident that the ones that we've selected give um, a lot of bang for your buck. And there's a lot of purpose to each movement. So we're never addressing just one thing. And usually movements we selected, um, if you have a restriction, let's say in your thoracic, then we know that we're focused on that, but it's not just there, right? It's upstream, it's downstream. It involves more than just that one location in your body. So that's why you would see in these movement patterns that they address other parts of your mechanics at the same time. So you're getting more out of it. Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped, balanced, cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off, and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% off their running form, strength work, and recovery products. Finally, Purpose Performance Wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel, including my own signature series. So head over to zackbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more. All right, folks, now back to the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's perfect. I think uh, uh, this has been awesome. Really good stuff. I think uh, just a, a continuation of some of the strength and conditioning stuff that I've been talking about with a couple other guests, but you brought a whole bunch of new things to the table. And I 100% understand why Brody recommended having you on the show. And I'm really happy that he connected us. Uh, but yeah, is, um, is there anything else you wanted to chat about or anything we missed? You know, just, I would say, um, if, if anyone's still listening out there, <laughs> just, <laughs> I just want to be vulnerable here enough to say that, um, you know, I, I steered away from strength training as long as I could. And, um, you know, I, I was, I was afraid of the bar, right. I was afraid to, I didn't want to walk into a weight weight room. I was intimidated. Um, and we live now in a, a different era. And one of the, the positive things that have come out of this, this, these recent challenges in the pandemic, um, is that people are, learning to, you know, they set up home gyms and they're learning to use some of these online programming. And, you know, if you're a little intimidated about stepping into the gym, you know, doing these, um, these online programming, it's not as hard as you would think getting yourself 
some bands ordering some reactive bands and, and uh, some light um, equipment, things like that to start. It's, it goes a long ways. And then eventually you can build up and get uh, an Olympic bar and a squat rack and things like that if you want to. But at the very least, just know that if you go into um, you know, a gym setting and there's other people that they've been around doing this a long time and you don't have that same gym age, you'd be surprised at how supportive they are when you just ask them a question, you ask for help and you say, Hey, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here. That's um, the culture is really strong. People love that you're in there to do something for yourself that you want to be a better version of yourself. And I found that myself with culture that, you know, there was nothing really to be intimidated about. It's just that little kid in me that, you know, I remember being a uh, presidential fitness test, right? Of yeah. course I'd smash the run, but the girls would be snickering when I had to do my pull-ups and I couldn't <laughs> do one. And, you know, and, and look, I get it, but, but there's nothing, there's no reason why we shouldn't be there. And if you're that runner, that's like always just been sort of um, lean and mean and, but not really a lifting machine, just know that that's one more thing that you can use to be a better version of you and it's waiting for you. So I encourage you to do it, whether you check out my program or you just, you know, uh, decide to take action and, and uh, do some research yourself, whatever you do, it can be a very positive experience and just don't, you know, just don't wait. It's worth it. It's, it's something that I only wish I had done younger because um, had I had done a proper strength training program when I was younger, I, I might've gone further in my, my running uh, career without the injuries. Um, I believe I would have. So, you know, it, wherever you're at, you can, you can improve with the right progressions. And I hope, I hope this helped you today. I hope people got something out of that, but just know that um, it's not something that you should feel intimidated by it, by it's, it's waiting for you. And it's a positive thing. Awesome. I think those are, that is a great message to, to, to end on with folks uh, who are looking to get a little more value out of their strength and conditioning or get into it in the first place. And, and kind of like you mentioned, it's never too late to start and there's uh, an applicable starting point for everyone. So uh, definitely uh, I encourage, and I'm sure you do too, Matt, for folks to get into some form of strength and conditioning, regardless whether you're a runner or not. Um, if folks are interested in getting a hold of you or reaching out, checking out some of your content, are there some go-to places on the internet they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So the relative run readiness podcast, um, we, we have been, I've been actually doing podcasts for, um, a year and a half or so now, but we launched the relative run readiness just a couple, um, well, I guess time goes by fast. It's now about a month ago. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we, we have our previous episodes on there, but we're about eight episodes deep on that particular podcast. And it's um, we do anything from interviewing Gwen Jorgensen uh, to just I talk about things like reps and reserve and, um, you know, rate of perceived effort, uh, time under tension. And I just try to clear these things up, but specifically for runners. So that's something that um, we're really enjoying. And the, the podcast is um, 
thankfully it's, it's, it's doing really well. We're getting a lot of new listeners every day. So we'd love it if you came on board and, and listened uh, to that podcast. And then of course, relative run readiness is a program that I have and uh, I don't push it. I'm not a salesman at all, but it's something I do believe in. I believe it could help you. And as I mentioned before, there's uh a two-week free trial for that, that uh, if you like it, it's $25 a month and it'll have progressions year-round for you there that you can use whether you're in-season, post-season, never lifted before. So there's little nuances there. For example, like when somebody's racing and in-season, we do more bilateral work. If somebody's um, going into their uh, their postseason work, we tend to get back to more unilateral work. And there's reasons and progressions for all those things, but I just try to make it a no-brainer that all you need to do is follow along and listen to the podcast, maybe see the videos. So we do have a main website, which is just Pendola Project, and that has everything on there as well. So hopefully, um, you know, you can uh, take a look at that and benefit from it. Um, we'd love to have you on and uh, listen to any requests that you have. Uh, that's how I get good ideas for podcasts myself. So let me know if there's anything you want me to talk about and I'll do that. Very cool, Matt. Thanks again for taking some time and sharing all this information with us. Uh, uh, we'll probably have to have you back on down the road. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions that come up and some, some deep dives into them in the future if you're interested. So uh, looking forward to getting this one up and hopefully chatting down the road. Oh, I'm certainly interested. And just thank you so much for, for having me on. Um, you had my good buddy, Rob Wolf on not too long ago. And yeah. He's, yeah. He used to actually train here at, at Pandola, but uh, I listened to your podcast and Rob was on. And I just love the fact that you're giving a voice to a lot of these things that come up that are out there that I think we all have questions about and uh, give Rob a platform. You know, this is where I just love guys like you that do have a bigger name that give somebody like me the opportunity to, to give uh, my opinion on things. And I, I really appreciate that, Zach, you, uh, you don't have to have guys, guys like me on uh, you're, you're certainly one of the, the Titans at this point. And, you know, I, I hope to learn from you as well. So maybe I can convince you to, 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 uh, to get onto my podcast at some point. Yeah, no, let's set it up. I'd love to, to do that. I, I got into podcasting originally going on a bunch of them. And then I realized like, let's try this out from the other end. And as I'm sure, you know, it's completely different from the other end, but it's still, it's equally as rewarding just in different ways. But uh, that's right. I had, uh, um, I, th I think I saw that you were down in Reno and I guess that's where Rob was before he's in Austin now, I believe, but uh, right. That makes, that makes sense. You know, I was living in kind of the Davis Sacramento area for a few years before moving to Phoenix and I'd get to Reno every once in a while. And Reno's super underrated. Like I think pe people think of it as like the little sister to Vegas, but as the kind of like online gambling is picked up and it's, you know, Vegas is maybe the last bastion of like physical in-person gambling. Reno is <laughs> a little bit more of a mountain town because there's some great outdoor recreation stuff just on the outsides of town there. And it's just a beautiful area. But it I, really is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a playground. Mm -hmm, for sure. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, Matt. Take care and have a, have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram 
at ZBitter on Twitter and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.